Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Season 4 of Jericho Road and a class that we're calling Living Water. I am fond of saying that most Christians figure they should read the Bible or even want to read the Bible. They just don't know how to read the Bible. And as a result, we'll stick with cherished verses or stories while another thousand pages goes unread and unloved. So for this reason, we'll use the backdrop of water, or the lack of it, to learn new stories and find new people with relevance and application for today. So last week, we learned why Jesus called himself living water in the Gospel of John. Today, we're going to learn a much older story, or two. In the spring of 609 B.C., and this is a story you can find in the book of 2 Kings chapter 23, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt entered the Jezreel Valley by the fortress city of Megiddo on his way north for other conquests. He was met unexpectedly by Josiah, king of Judah, armed for battle and newly allied with his Babylonian neighbors to the north. Megiddo. The battle happened at Megiddo. Megiddo is at the mouth of what is the beginning of the Fertile Crescent, which means that this is a strategic place, not only because it's the breadbasket of this part of the world, but it's also a superhighway deep into Asia. Megiddo is the site of some 20 cities, uh, all fought over so many times, over 7,000 years or even more, that the author of Revelation dreamed that this would be the site of the final battle between good and evil, between God and evil, and he even used the Greek name for the city, which is Armageddon. At 609 B.C., Necho meets Josiah, and he's not even clear why Josiah would do it. It was a complete surprise to the Pharaoh, and he would even send Josiah this letter. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 21. Check it out. But Necho sent envoys to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but against the house with which I'm at war, and God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God who's with me so that he will not destroy you. Well, the battle was a disaster. Josiah was killed in this battle, and 20 years later, the destruction of Jerusalem would happen by the very Babylonians uh, he allied his armies with on this day. Destruction would be complete. And this scene is an illustration of the rock and a hard place that God's people find themselves again and again in the Hebrew Scriptures, between two superpowers and both of these with an abundance of water. As we continue looking at the backstory of water in Scripture, I'm going to subscribe to a theory that sociologists call hydraulic civilizations, which describes early uh, huge city-states with large-scale agriculture and armies and control over the water to sustain them. According to my pal Idan, my Israeli archaeology friend, nothing has really changed. As I mentioned in the last episode, you can call any country what you want in the Middle East, but in the end, it's just hydrofeudalism. 
The person who controls the water controls their world. Another term is water dynasty, which gets us close to a Bible problem. You see, these governments were total, and they were stable with very little turnover under a divine God king. Oh, the Hebrews would be different. They don't worship that, right? They worship under God. They would be a very different kind of nation. So the Hebrews would leave a city. Abraham would leave one of these city-states and be different under God. They would be a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of king. Mesopotamia in the north means between the rivers, and Egypt in the south controls the mighty Nile. They would be different from both. But both of these city-states, these water dynasties, would provide backstories that both inform and shape everything that follows and tell us what Jesus came to do. And both have everything to do with water. So the first backstory happened some thousand years before Necho and Josiah, but it also happened in Egypt with another pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Let's see if we can learn it in a new way. We know the story of Exodus because we've seen the movie. God rescues a nation of slaves and defeats a king with a series of wonders and plagues. Hollywood would call him Ramses, but the Bible doesn't care. He's simply Pharaoh. He's a king, just another king. The Hebrews don't worship a God king. They're different in the way that God asks them to be different. They have God on their side, and they have God with a name. His name is I Am. When God reveals his name to Moses in the burning bush, the Hebrew is so, so hard to translate that the best we can do is I am, or I am who I am, or perhaps I will be who I will be. But one scholar, Robert Alter, has studied the Hebrew closely to say that it's quite possible that God's name is, I will be God for you. And I really like this. No matter where you go, I will be God for you. That's God's name. Well, let's look at the drama of Exodus. In the world of Jesus, they have water. They just don't have freedom. Oh, they have lots of water, so much that archaeologists now believe that they that in order to build the pyramids, they flooded the ponds. They made ponds with the flooded Nile and floated huge blocks on rafts in order to build the pyramids, and then they just let the water go away. And there you have it. And that's a lot of water. So the rescue of the nation of slaves would have to be an act of trust away from water with oppression into the wilderness with no water and freedom. And the plagues themselves are an attack on water or resulted from water contamination. Think of the ones you know. The Nile turns to blood, then frogs, then gnats, then diseased cattle, then boils. Yuck! And then finally, as God rescues this nation of slaves, he parts the Red Sea in Hebrew The text says really Reed Sea, which is probably a smaller, shallower lake near the Suez Canal today. But the waters have parted, and safely on the other side of the Nile is Miriam, Moses' sister, standing with a tambourine. Moses' sister, who was there when he was drawn out of the water. Moses is an Egyptian name, which means to draw out. And she's standing there now as God saves them, as God closes the waters over erect army, delivers them uh, from the hand of Pharaoh, an unnamed king, and she sings a song that is the oldest poetry in the Bible. It's Exodus 15, beginning with the 20th verse. Check it out. The song of Miriam. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, 
And all the women went out with her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, She ruleth Yahweh, Kiega Ogaah, Susra Rokavo, Ramavayam. Those words are among the oldest in Scripture. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Her song would be the starting point for a nation. God would do something they could not do on their own. With water. Well, keep reading, and we see that in this land with no water, God will protect them. In Exodus chapter 17, Moses would strike a rock, and they would have water. And it's in the quiet, in the quiet of the desert, and the danger of the desert, but the freedom of the desert, that they can listen. They can listen. They're not distracted. They have to be dependent. Deep in the Negev Desert, south in the nation of Israel, which is part of the wilderness where they would have wandered in search of a, of a homeland after escape from Egypt. Uh, there's a mountain called Har Karkom. It means Mount of Saffron. Uh, this mountain has been holy since Paleolithic times, meaning that people have worshipped on this mountain for 100,000 years or more. There's no way to really know where the mountain of God would have been, the mountain of God where God revealed his name, the mountain of God where they received the Ten Commandments. But Har Karkom is an interesting place with 40,000 rock engravings, which means that it's been holy for a long, long time. And I've got my own story. In North Alabama, there's a wonderful old forest called the Bankhead Forest, which is above sea level enough to where it has deep cuts with Canadian and northern flora and fauna that were left behind by the last glaciation. It's an absolutely fascinating forest uh, and an island of, of beautiful trees that you don't find in our state. And then also deep within these cuts are caves and shelters that Native American people would use to hunt and to worship. And deep in the middle of the forest is a place called the Kinlock Shelter, in which an ancient Native American people, really a pre-Cherokee, we're not even sure who, which tribe this would have been, uh, they would worship in there, and there are petroglyphs on the wall, fascinating stuff. There's a snake and a man and a son. And I used to take youth groups in there on our way to see the largest tree in our state. And and we would stop, and one kid said one time, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if we could worship in here or have Eucharist in here? And I remember thinking immediately, that wouldn't be right. I mean, gosh, uh, that's someone else's church. Well, Har Karkom was someone else's church for a long time. And, and while we may not know the mountain of God exactly, it sure was somebody's mountain of God. And then during the winter solstice, there's a phenomenon that's really cool. As the winter sun gets so low, it burns right across the desert into a cave and it glows, and they call it the burning bush. Well, there's no way to know where the mountain of God would be, but I'll tell you what, uh, that has been someone's mountain of God for a long, long time, and here's where I want you to use your imagination. Back in the water dynasties, the hydro civilizations, they created a new invention called writing, and writing was used in order to inventory grain for the king. Writing eventually would be used to uh, solidify the water, the divine king's status, if you will, to create myths, to solidify their power, to ensure stability. But it was still a new enough technology that out there in the desert, okay, away from water, but with freedom, God, not a little g God king, but rather God, the God I am, the God I will be God for you, would use this new technology to give them 10 commandments or 10 Ends. The God that made the cosmos would take God's own finger and write down 10 things for us to know. The first four regarding union with God, the last six regarding union with neighbor 
Remember, the Hebrews were supposed to be a different kind of nation, not worshiping a, a political leader, not worshiping someone who had control of the water, but rather worshiping a God who will be God for them, who made the stars above their heads and the oceans and the mountains and knew the dreams that they had last night. Four regarding union with God, six regarding union of neighbor. It was the beginning of a story that continues to this day. And there would be another. You know, in Mark chapter 12, um, Jesus' enemies are circling and they try to pin him down to name the, the greatest of the commandments. By this time, of course, people being people, that we can always mess up a good thing. These 10 ends had become over 600. And so they wanted to know the greatest so they could then take another one and perhaps put him in a corner if he didn't choose it. And he said, actually, there isn't a great a greatest commandment. There are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he's encapsulating these 10 ends that were given to them way out there on the mountain of God in that place where they had to be dependent on water. Uh, 10 ends. Uh, union with God, union with neighbor, uh, two commandments, union with God, union with neighbor. Brings me to a, a cool thing I like to tell you about our church. We have a jazz concert every December, and it's really fun because it's it's some of it's Christmas music and some of it's religious music, but a lot of it's just jazz music. And someone asked me one time, why jazz in church? But you see, it's, it's really based on this idea that that love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself are the two pillars of our religion. Well, jazz also is based on two pillars. It's based on, it's based on key, uh, say B flat, for instance, and tempo, say four, four time. Uh, but between, between the two pillars, you can do just about anything. Jazz is new every night. You, you make it up as you go along. You've got key and you've got tempo, but then you pick up your horn and you just play stuff in the middle. So jazz is a lot like faith. We have two. Now, do we listen? So this podcast leaves us with a question. How do we find ourselves trusting God? And two, what does it mean for us to have all the earthly possessions we could ever want and not be free? Well, if you were listening at the beginning, I said there are two backstories that inform all the Old Testament and tell us what Jesus came to do. The first of the backstories is Exodus. The second one is exile, and it also has to do with water, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks, guys. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying Rich's Living Water podcast. My name is Corey Jones, and I'm a priest here at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, and I want to tell you about a new worship opportunity for the St. Luke's family. We are starting up a worship service in the Crestline Park area and would love for you to join us. I'm going to be playing some music, and we will worship together with communion starting on Sunday, September 11th at 4 p.m. We will gather at the church where Dunstan Avenue and Haygood Street meet across from Saul's Juke Joint. My hope is that you will come and join us, and let's just see what happens. I encourage you to come as you are and bring a friend with you. There's a lot of potential here, and we're excited to see what we can build together as a faith community. So on September 11th at 4 p.m., all are welcome to join us for this exciting adventure at 605 Haygood Street for St. Luke's in Crestline Park.